She gave it to me in the early 80s. Uh, I must have been late teens, early 20s. I'd never seen it before, and uh, one day she took me to the bedroom and said, I, I want you to have something of mine, and it's uh, a dress that I bought in London when I was younger for some functions that I used to go to with Papa, and I'd like you to have it. And she laid out this immaculately beautiful black two-piece outfit and I'd never seen anything like it. It was astounding. This watery velvet, silk velvet, it was just so fluid. And of course the um, features on the jacket were incredible. You know, these sort of mirrors, gold brocade embroidery. It was so impressively beautiful. But she said to me, I've not worn it for some time, but I'd like you to wear it. It's not uh, to be kept in a cupboard and I think you should have it. So yes, I, I was very grateful, very surprised, but I did wear the dress. I wore it on a few occasions and I'm very ashamed to say that a couple of them weren't appropriate occasions. Episode 5, Vera Worth's Scaparelli. Hello, this episode of Behind the Scenes at the Museum with me, Tiffany Jenkins is the story of a dress and a jacket, designed by the outlandish Elsa Scaparelli. It's a statement piece. It's the sort worn by a 1940s film star. Usually, if it survives the red carpet and the star-studded after-parties, it ends up on a mannequin in a museum, in this case, the National Gallery of Victoria in Melbourne, Australia. And yet this is also the story of Vera Worth, Vera was a shop girl from Bristol who married John Worth in May 1935. She saved up her pennies and she bought this knockout garment, wore it on a number of significant occasions and then passed her treasured possession down to her granddaughter Amanda. This is the story of Vera Worth's Scaparelli. Valeria, sweetheart. We t- I've got to do um, a, a recorded interview, so can we turn off jingle bells? Of course. <laughs> At the end of 2018, I was flicking through the catalogue of a clothing auctioneer's, the London-based Carrie Taylor's. Her auctions are a regular fixture on the calendar for those museums that have a budget to spend and a fashion and costume collection. I paid her a visit in advance of the auction to find out how fashion ends up in museums and about one dress in particular that had caught my eye. Um, and I've, so I've always loved vintage clothing, and then I saw this dress. Have you ever been here before? I've never been. I've always uh, looked at your catalogues mm. in a kind of, you know, like, at the window pane kind of way. And how do you decide what goes in this auction? It's the best of the best. I, it's called Passion for Fashion. I've always had one. And... Um, we have very we have general sales as well two or three times a year where you know you can buy things for a hundred pounds upwards and those sort of good buy to wear we'll have museum pieces in that as well but with this one it's the creme de la creme all of the major collectors across the world know that this is a special event our next sale is in a few days time so the room is looking very glamorous it's uh, set up with um, really beautiful dresses from all periods, from the 18th century onwards. 
Um, we've got Chinese 18th century painted silk. We've got Chinese embroidered open robes. We've got Princess Diana dresses. We have Balenciaga. We have Schiaparelli. We have Givenchy. We have Paul Poiret. We have Courage. We have McQueen. You name it, we have the best of the best here. What would you say your key pieces in this? I, th- I think that the, t- the two key pieces from a fashion standpoint has to be Schiaparelli's uh, Hall of Mirror Ensemble um, from 1938. With no our guest on site, they have been provided with blindfolds and are the blindfolds all in place, panel? Yes, sir. Yes. Good, will you come in, mystery challenger, and sign in, please. Are you in the entertainment business? Mm. That's one down and nine to go, Mr. Block. Are you in the public eye? Uh-huh. Are you in any way in the field of art? It's a wide field, John. Yes. Ah. Would you say that your name was famous in the world of fashion? Ah. <sighs> Might you be known as a famous designer of ladies' dresses? Uh, you're getting hot. <laughs> would you uh, would you be uh, located in Paris? Yes. Well, I only know two or three dressmakers, so I'll take a chance at Scaparelli. That's the right. The fashion designer Elsa Scaparelli on What's My Line in 1952. Elsa Scaparelli was one of the leading fashion designers between the two world wars. She was known for her flair for the sculptural and flamboyant. She collaborated with artists, including Alberto Giacometti and Salvador Dali, with whom she created the Dali lobster dress. Scaparelli's clientele were affluent, gorgeous, glamorous. They included Catherine Hepburn and Marlena Dietrich. Let's go stand in front of it. It's, well, it's wow, isn't it? It's It's just... It's surrealism combined with fashion, combined with the best haute couture workmanship. It's of the softest black velvet. So if you imagine a jacket and the front panels are... They have two mirrored cartouches, one over each breast. Each panel is formed from myriad little little mirrors uh, held in place by glass floret-shaped beads. And then... It's framed by this wonderful gold Rococo embroidered strap work and the buttons, and Schiaparelli was very, very known for her sort of novelty buttons. They're sort of neoclassical little ladies' heads with tiaras and there are five of them and it's all complete. What's very rare about this dress is that, well, there are two things. One is that it has the matching dress because normally the dress is gone. They become separated. They become separated. And the dress itself is not in the best condition because I think it was so sexy and so simple and just the ultimate black evening dress that it was not only worn by the lady who originally owned it, but she gave it to her granddaughter in the 1980s and she wore it as well. So it's been partied in it heavily. It's seen some time. It's seen some time. But no one else in the world has got the dress with this jacket. I know of three other jackets, none of them have the dress. Where are the jackets now? They are in museums and actually one is in a museum, two are in private collections and then there is this one. The other very unusual thing about this particular dress is that when you think of these really major uh, Schiaparelli numbers 
you think of the aristocratic ladies or the rich ladies who wore them. So Wallace Simpson, for example, had her entire trousseau made by Schiaparelli. But this is unusual because this, is, this was um, bought by um, a lady called Vera who was um, basically a very good-looking shop girl. Kerry told me that it was Vera's granddaughter, Amanda Ellis, who had placed the Schiaparelli up for auction. I tracked her down to find out more about Vera and her wardrobe. I love this one. On I do. That's one of my favourites. She looks cool. She's such a cool cat, isn't she? Look at this. I mean, you know, Betty Boop and all that. She's a la mode in every Everyone. picture. Yeah. There is not a bad picture of her. I mean, even here with her sort of, you know, pinny on and doing the mopping. <laughs> she could be voguing. She was voguing. And my grandfather, when he'd left school at 14, became a commercial traveller. And my grandmother, um, Nana as we knew her, she worked as a shop assistant for Jones, Joneses, in Bristol. And uh, she was a sales assistant in the ladies' wear department. And they both were very hard working. They, they did uh, spend a little bit extra on enjoying quality clothing when they could. And sometimes that meant altering things or repairing things or making things even, but they always looked their very best and always enjoyed um, us looking our very best. So whenever we went rocked up at their front door looking sort of a little bit like the tomboy ragamuffins that we were. Off came the shabby clothes and thrown into a bath and curlers were put in my hair and by morning the clothes were crisp and white and clean and the hair was brushed out and curled and tied up with ribbons. I mean, they they wouldn't compromise on, on anything like that, you know. So <laughs> we all had to look our best when we were with each other. But it was a joy, you know. And uh, I know, for my part, that uh, it's something I've always continued to enjoy. And I've got uh, a whole box here full of Nana's buttons and zips and hooks. I mean, she... She knew how to put a frock together and she knew how to look after clothes and she really admired um, uh, quality clothes and I think she learned that from her first job mm -hmm. as a sales assistant in Jones because it really switched her on. If I look at photographs of her as a teenager with my, my grandfather, you can see the transformation once she started work into this beautiful and very sort of... Uh, Statuesque? Yeah, very statuesque and, and well-groomed woman, young woman. And I've got a few magazine, the newspaper articles here of her working at Jones's because she was, of course, the model uh, in oh, the store. So this is her? This is her. Oh, my goodness. And uh, she's showing off uh, some displays. They're obviously laid out for the customers. That's a beautiful photograph. So this yeah. would have been a professionally done photograph? Yes, that would have been. That would have been a photograph uh, done for the mantelpiece, I'm sure, for mm -hmm. my grandfather. He had a tough time during the war. That must have been um, shortly before the war. Uh, he, he was a prisoner of war in a Japanese 
um, prisoner of war camp, and he he was on the Burma Railway. He was one of the few that came back, and she made it her mission. I think, you know, she she actually stopped working at Jones's when they were married, and um, she um, was pregnant with my mom, Julie. Um, and when he came back from the war, it was her mission to uh, build him up again, and she did. And they both, you know, went on to um, achieve great things. And uh, one of them was my grandfather's promotion in Carreras, cigarette manufacturers, because cigarettes were made in Bristol in those days. I don't know. If, I don't think they still are. I don't know. Does your picture ever appear in the newspapers? Yes. Would it appear possibly on the front page at any time? Yes. I do remember um, whenever I went to visit her, she'd always have newspaper cuttings and magazine articles about whatever the fashion of the day was, shots of the catwalk and uh, what Princess Diana or Lady Diana at that time, what she was wearing. And we used to have long conversations about um, how we felt about the styles. And... Uh, um, she was always very keen for me to um, follow with her, if you like, and to enjoy the passion with her. I mean, I look at photographs of them when they were children. I mean, they were scrappy little kids, and they lived in working-class conditions, and always very clean and always very loving. They had that determination, and I think after the Second World War, there was a, a lot of opportunity for people of my grandparents' background to actually transform themselves and to climb out of that hardship. But I know that Nana squirreled. She always squirreled her savings and her money, always budgeted tightly, and my grandfather didn't buy her that frog. I don't know that he, that he even knew how much it cost. <laughs> I don't think he did. I think Nana had some private savings. I know that she bought it in London, but I, I, I don't know what she paid for it. But um, she obviously had a little bit squirreled in a biscuit tin. And she, you know, because she didn't even have her own bank account. Mm -hmm. And she went down to London, not they, she went down to London and she got that frock. So she would have had cash? She would have had cash. She didn't even know how to write a cheque. I mean, I had to teach her that when my grandfather died. She would have squirrelled away that cash in that biscuit tin or behind the radiator for years. And then held it on the train. Held it on the train knowing exactly this was premeditated. This was no, oh, look at that in the window. She went down to London with this steely determination to have that frog mm. and she dreamed of it for years I'm quite certain ever since she was a young girl um, when she started appreciating what high fashion was what couture was what good frocks good designers good cuts good fabrics I'm pretty sure that 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 planted a very private passion and ambition and uh, she realized it you know, good for her. There was this big dinner dance, and so she came to London. Schiaparelli had a, had a, a maison in, in London as well, as in Paris. And she had this dress, so we have her photographed wearing this at the dinner dance with her husband next to her. And, um, can and you I, imagine what that must have been like? She, for her, but, but for can her you imagine in Bristol in 1938, somebody walking in wearing oh, this? It's like a film star. I mean, yes, Marlena Dietrich would have something like this. 
at that time. She was a great Schiaparelli aficionado as well. What would you have paid for it, do you think, at the time? I don't know. I don't know. And I don't... I mean, I've, I've seen old Marlena Dietrich uh, receipts, and I think dresses tended to be something in the... Re- uh, something like this, probably two or three hundred pounds. Mm-hmm. But that would be a fortune then. I suppose the most formal function I ever wore it to was... Um, it must have been around the mid-80s. I was invited by a friend, um, as his plus one, to Mansion House, which is in Pall Mall in London. And it was the Lord Mayor's annual dinner. Or It was quite formal, you know, all the so-called great and good, all these captains of industry and so on, and their beautifully dressed wives. And there was little old me, you know, I was the secretary in Brighton, wearing this incredible Scarparelli. And... Uh, arriving at this uh, incredible location. In actual fact, I, I had quite a few compliments on the outfit and people saying, who are you? And, uh, you know, where do you uh, come from? And all. and, and I, I had, you know, nothing to impress them with, really. No, no sort of uh, uh, glamorous story or about being some rich uh, Russian princess or anything. It was just me in, in this beautiful Scarparelli. It was the Scarparelli that used to part the waves and open the doors. And I was just, um, I realised then I was just wearing art. You know, I was wearing something incredibly special. And uh, people understood that. Mm. You know, it was one of those outfits that uh, it just wasn't something you saw very often. And you are smiling, you're beaming, and I yes. wonder if there's something about wearing it. Yes, you can't be anything other than deliriously happy when you wear a frock like that. So where else did you wear it? I guess um, I wore it whenever I could, but I didn't uh, go to Hollywood parties, you know. <laughs> so you'd have this sort of Brighton girl rocking up in this scarferelli at the local club or, you know, at a party, a house party. And, uh, yes, I, I thoroughly enjoyed wearing it. And what so did it feel like? It just felt so soft and like a, an extra layer of skin, just that, you know, it was made to fit. And, uh, yes, you know, you... You just felt sublime in it. You just enjoyed it. Just what Nana wanted. At what point did you realise what you had? So you, you knew it was well, a important dress. But. Yes. Um, well, actually, what prompted me to look was um, I read in a newspaper, it must have been a couple of years earlier, um, uh, it, it must have been that Scarparelli was making a comeback, or the brand name was making a comeback. And I thought, oh, I've got a Scarparelli. Let's look into what that means, you know, see if it's the same style. And so I looked up Scarparelli, Googled a bit more about her, just genuinely interested in the designer. And one of the items that came up was, you know, the Scarparelli jacket, and I recognised it. I got this email one afternoon, and it's this picture of, of Vera wearing it at the dinner dance, and then, a, you know, just from an iPhone, and then a picture of the jacket. And I would say within 30 seconds of that coming into my inbox, hello, <laughs> I was on the phone, I was on the phone, I was on the chase. And then I went, I actually went to Somerset to pick it up. I mean, she completely understood the value of this, this amazing outfit. And she loved Scarparelli. I knew it was in safe hands. So I, she, I think she tried very hard not to look utterly appalled because not only did I store the garments 
uh, incorrectly, you know, I'd hung it in a in a sort of um, a cover, obviously. But you shouldn't hang these frocks. I mean, she very carefully folded it and stuffed the arms with tissue. And you know, I could almost hear my grandmother telling me off and saying, "That's how you should do it, Amanda. You know, that's how you should store your your good frocks." But anyway, she folded it up neatly and picked off a few cat hairs and took it away. And <laughs> The relief, really. The responsibility was too much to bear to, to hang on to it a moment longer. So I said, can you take it? And she said, yes, of course. <laughs> I'll find well, it a good home. Yeah, I just hope it does really well for, for my client in a few days' time because, again, you know, it's a serious amount of money. And I particularly like the client who owns it. So when I'm on the rostrum my heart will be beating. I will be thinking of them and my heart will be beating and I'll be thinking of Vera and thinking you know what a very stylish girl. Welcome to Kerry Taylor Auction in London. We have the most incredible sale for you today. It's uh, high fashion at its height really. Was it the first time you've been to an clothes auction? Yes. Any auction. Terrifying and exciting but one of the things that impressed me was the quality of the items that were being auctioned that day. And some of them not very expensive, some of them quite affordable, but beautiful clothes. Now, one of the stars of the show, we've got 70, the fine and rare Elsa Schiaparelli, Horn of Mirrors, jacket and rare matching dress. Zodiac collection, autumn, winter, 1938, 39. And I'll start bidding on this one at uh, 48,000 pounds with me. 48,000. I have 50, thank you. 50,000 I have. And I say 55. So 50,000 pounds now. So 50, 50,000 on our telephone now at 50,000 pounds. Gavel raised. About to sell. Sold at Vera's Scaparelli Ensemble sold for £50,000. It was snapped up by the National Gallery of Victoria in Melbourne, Australia. I spoke via Skype with Katie Somerville, senior creator of fashion and textiles, about the museum's collection and their new acquisition. How would you describe your collection? In many ways, it's, it's truly encyclopedic. So we have very early textiles, for instance, from Coptic Egypt from between the 5th and the 9th century, which effectively have been, you know, come from archaeological digs and been acquired in the early 20th century into the collection. But then right through to the work of a contemporary, you know, fashion designer who creates something last week. One of the, the major driving forces for us currently is that we have a particularly generous philanthropist called Christina Campbell Pretty, who in 2015, I think was the first time that she really worked very closely with us on acquiring a major group of early 20th century French couture uh, for the collection. This was a, a group of 130 pieces that was being offered to the gallery. The wonderful um, dress and jacket by Scaparelli that we're talking about today was in fact acquired for us by um, the very same Christina Campbell Pretty and in fact she was literally the one bidding on it so um, this this particular 
beautiful gown and the fact that it was the original gown and the jacket makes it even more rare. I mean, to have this lovely, lovely provenance um, recorded in relation to the object too because, you know, a lot of the time, um, you, you know, that provenance of who the wearer was and their own story can get separated from a work over the course of its life and as it changes hands. So, and in fact, it's um, it just arrived here in Melbourne with us um, about a week ago now, um, and it's you know up on its mannequin and, and being prepared for display. So it's so when it's sent to you, are there precautions mm-hmm. that you have to take? I mean, I, it's not a DHL number. Yeah. No, no, absolutely, and that, and that's partly, I guess, why you know it didn't arrive the week after the auction, and certainly some key objects, um, uh, you actually require a special license, basically export license from the British government for it to leave the country, and this was a work in that category. So, once once a work becomes part of the collection, I suppose the ultimate aim is that we maintain it in best possible. Um, condition mm-hmm. and so that's everything from light levels and controlling temperature controls certainly um, you know no one ever wearing it <laughs> I know it's so annoying those questions still occasionally come up but um, you just want to once, once people understand um, ironically the damage that the human body can do to <laughs> to um, a, a fine fabric or even just you know the oils in the tips of your fingers you know all those things cumulatively when you are custodian of an object that you want to be around for many 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 years way beyond you know your passing really um, you, you do think of things very differently and the implications of everything that you do in terms of that work so will you tell Vera's story in the gallery? We definitely, um, on the, the label that accompanies the work, um, do talk about, I suppose, set the work in context within um, Scaparelli's work, but also uh, within the context of the wearer. And this is also the type of thing that, uh, in terms of when we give lectures and, and talks in the space, that is the type of content that audiences love, you know. So it's beyond the fantastic design prowess of a particular designer, uh, we know that audiences love details around how something was made, how many hours something took to make, and then, yeah, who wore it and what it meant to them. So uh, it's tremendous to have that detail with this work. I think that must be because there's a bit of Vera in all of us, or we would like a little bit of that kind of glamour and gorgeousness. Sometimes you can be what you wear. If you uh, want to look the part, you can be the part for an evening. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes that's all you need. Yes. (laughs) Go back to your normal life. That's right. Yes. So now it's going to the museum. Yes. Um, What are your thoughts about, about that? Well, I'm very pleased it's going to a good home and will be well taken care of and uh, well it's like a Picasso isn't it it's like a beautiful piece of art you know you've got to look after these things um, Scarpelli was only with us for that short window of time I'm so pleased that it's gone to a museum and not to a private owner and I know that sounds a little bit selfish but I think a lot more people will see it that way mm-hmm. and not just those that move in the Scarpelli circles 
you know, everyone will get to see it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Scenes at the Museum. If you want to see a picture of the Scaparelli Ensemble and of Vera Worth wearing it at the dinner dance and much, much more, visit us on Twitter and Instagram on Behind the Museum. Behind the Scenes at the Museum was written and presented by Tiffany Jenkins. The producer was Jack Fillimore.